right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Amanda, and I'm the discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines. And we say this every week, but it is the truth. We have been praying for you. And so we are so glad that you are joining us here for worship this morning. We believe that God is up to some really powerful stuff. And uh, it's just such a privilege to be able to gather together and worship the God who has everything um, just in delights in our presence. And so that's pretty awesome. So I'm glad you're here today to be a part of it. It is the season of Lent. And so we are kicking off a new sermon series today. We're going to spend the next several weeks, several weeks looking at some of Jesus' statements in the book of John, his I am statements. So you heard in our Bible reading a little bit ago, today we're going to talk about when Jesus said in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Next Sunday, uh, Pastor John will be back and he will be talking about uh, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Um, this is my little public service announcement for you, a little teaser to get you here next weekend. You got to set your clocks ahead next Saturday, right? Total bummer. So I don't know, those of you that struggled to get here for the 11 o'clock service, you know who you are. There's a Saturday night service, and the time hasn't been messed with, and so you could always check that out as well. Or another option, if you are considering what to give up for Len, if you haven't decided yet, you could consider giving up daylight saving time. <laughs> you would, <laughs> I don't know, just realize the rest of the world doesn't care, and so uh, they're going to expect you to be everywhere an hour earlier if you would decide to give that up. But anyway, we are really excited about the season of Lent and the next several weeks and the things that we're going to learn together and, and experience through this I Am study that we're doing. So the really cool thing about the season of Lent is as Christians, this is kind of our time. I mean, if you think about it, because... Most of the world, a lot of the world, celebrates Christmas, whether they really understand, you know, they're celebrating the birth of Jesus. A lot of the world celebrates Easter, right, whether they really understand what they're celebrating at Easter or not. But for Christians, Lent is kind of this time that is kind of uniquely Christian. If you grew up in a tradition that maybe see, uh, celebrated Lent, then you're familiar with this. If you didn't grow up in the church at all or you were from a tradition, I'm from a Baptist tradition where they really didn't um, celebrate the season of Lent. Um, so it might be a little bit new to you, and that's totally okay. The idea behind it is that sometimes people might decide to, to give something up that they kind of cherish during this season. And the idea of giving those things up, just things that, I don't know, maybe not necessarily things that you cherish, but things that you know maybe are not the best for you. So some people will give up uh, soda or coffee, which... No. <laughs> um, or sugar, that'd be a fine one. Um, some people will give up, you know, certain words that they use. Other people will add things in. So there is uh, adding in daily prayer or adding in Bible reading. I just want to caution you, this is really, really important. As you consider things to give up or things to add in, it's important that you keep the two straight. Because what you don't want to do is add in daily swearing and then remove daily Bible reading right? Like you'd get to the end of the 40 days and wonder why your life was a mess. <laughs> it didn't work. Um, so just something to keep in mind. It's, it's important to keep those two things straight. But the awesome thing about the season of Lent is that we have an opportunity through the needs that we experience, 
when we remember our longing for whatever this thing is, that then we remember that we were actually made for a whole lot more than what is here on this earth, that we are made with needs and longings that go way deeper than any of the physical needs that we have. So that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what's happening in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 6 or get your Bible app out. We're going to be spending some time there. While you're doing that, just something, a little comment about some of the things that we give up or whatever for Lent. If you're thinking about, okay, so Lent is 40 days, but I understand it doesn't include Sunday, so I can give up Mountain Dew, but I can still have it on Sunday, right? Or if you're thinking like, oh, I've done this a hundred times, I don't know, uh, I don't, then maybe, then maybe this is the year that you sit out. And I want to tell you that that is totally okay because all of this is not meant to be legalistic. All of this is not meant to be something that takes life from you. This is meant to be something that points us to Jesus. And so if it becomes this kind of thing where you're more concerned about whatever it is that you're adding or taking away and the focus is on that and then the focus isn't on the one who gave us everything, then we're kind of missing the point. So just that's my little side commentary free uh, couple minutes there on my thoughts about Lynn. So there you go. Um, in John chapter 6, there's this idea of our needs and what they are and how they lead us towards something a little bit deeper is what's happening all throughout this, this uh, chapter. And we pick up in verse 29, which if you were reading the book of John and if you were starting out in, in chapter 6, you would start and you would go along and you'd get to verse 29 where it says, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. And you might read that and you'd probably skim over it because there's some really exciting stuff that happens before that and then there's some really cool stuff that happens after that. So this idea of believe in the one he sent. Okay, got it. I can totally get that. It's this little verse that we might throw away, but it completely changes the focus of this chapter and the focus of what the author, John, is trying to do. John was very concerned and really, really, really it was important to John that we understand as the readers of this passage who Jesus is. And so with that little line, he takes the focus of chapter 6 away from what Jesus has just done and he shifts it now to who Jesus is. John is really concerned that we understand who Jesus is. And that's why he starts his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word, capital W, already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We'll keep going because it's pretty fun. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. If we skip ahead to verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. John is really concerned that we understand who Jesus is because what Jesus has done because of who he is has changed everything. And the people who are hearing this are looking at this guy, Jesus, and they're thinking of this guy who they know as Joseph and Mary's kid, right? And they know his parents and they know his brothers and his sisters and they know that he came from Nazareth. So they have this information about Jesus that kind of keeps them from getting at what he has done and, and where he has come from to who he is. This information they have is actually kind of holding them back and standing in their way. So when we read in chapter 6, 
<coughs> excuse me, this chapter starts out with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so there was at least 5,000 men there, and then they had their families, of course, too. And so we hear about, you know, they find the five loaves of bread and the two fish from this boy's lunch, and Jesus receives this bread and this fish, and he blesses it, and he thanks his father for it, and then he multiplies it. And it's not that everyone just got a little nibble to tide him over until their real dinner. Everyone got as much as they wanted. Everyone got as much as they needed. It was this act of generosity and of complete provision for their physical needs that they experience here. And the people are so excited about this. They just can't believe that this guy has done this. And so they decide, and the Bible tells us there in uh, verse uh, 15, that the people decide they're going to kidnap Jesus because they want to make him their king. How refreshing is that to imagine that maybe there'd be this person who'd be a reluctant king who wouldn't want to have all the power and all of the stuff that goes along with that. So the people think they're going to have to kidnap him to make him their king. But Jesus is on to their little tricks, so he slips away. In the meantime, the people are not going to give up. They're hanging out. They're going to wait for Jesus. The disciples go down by the Sea of Galilee. They're by their boat, and they're waiting for Jesus. And Jesus is kind of like that relative who, you know, you always say that you're going to leave behind because they're always dragging behind, but you never actually do. But in this case, the disciples actually leave him because he's taking too long. And so the disciples cross over uh, the Sea of Galilee, heading towards the town of Capernaum. And then overnight, Jesus goes for a walk like Jesus does, except for he does it on top of the lake instead of going around it, like whatever. And so then he gets over to Capernaum and joins up with the disciples. And the next morning, the people realize, oh, he got away. He's gone. He's gone. The disciples are gone. And so some other boats come over. They hijack those boats and take them back over to Capernaum. And they show up there, and they see Jesus, and they're kind of like, when did you, what, what's going on? I mean, they're curious about how Jesus got there, but the thing is that Jesus kind of sees right through what they're asking about, and Jesus essentially says to them, says to them listen, you're looking so hard, you're looking so hard at the trees that you are missing the fact that there is a forest right in front of you. You are working so hard to chase after this bread, to interpret these signs, or to see, to demand more signs, Jesus says, you know what, basically, if you were to spend about as much energy putting this all together and trying to imagine what all of this might actually mean, if you would spend as much energy uh, remembering the teachings that you have been taught your whole life, then you would be able to see that there's something a whole lot more going on here. And if you'd put some of your energy towards that, instead of chasing after this bread that's just going to uh, perish anyway, Jesus is saying, basically, <laughs> we might actually be on to something. And the people want to know where this, where this miracle has come from, where these things that Jesus has done, how does he do them? And he responds at the end of verse 27. He says, for God the Father has given me his seal of approval. And so in typical fashion, just like we would do, the people say, oh, well, that's pretty cool. I mean, you're just a guy. So if you can do these miraculous signs, we want to know how to do them too. And we're just like that, aren't we? I mean, half of the books in the world that get written wouldn't need to be written if we weren't so interested in always knowing what someone's secret is. What's the key to their success? How did they, how did these wonderful things happen to them, right? We're always really interested in that. And then Jesus says, well, yeah, I mean, here again, here's the thing. It's not your job to do these signs. That's my job. And then Jesus says, and what we heard today in verse 29, your job is to believe in the one that Jesus, that God has sent. 
Well, then the people hear that, and that sounds like a terrible idea. They don't want that job. They want the exciting, let's do miracles job. They don't want the, okay, I guess I'll just believe in the one that he sent job. That job sounds really boring. And so now they're like, well, okay, <clears throat> exactly who is it that you think you are? Because I don't know if you remember this, uh, Jesus, but Moses, our ancestor, he gave us food for 40 years. And you show up and you give us dinner one time, and now you think you can tell us what to do? My paraphrase of the message, if you know, I'm just kidding. It's not. Um, that's kind of a paraphrase of what was actually going down here. And so Jesus says, yeah, but here's the thing. Here's where you're wrong again. It wasn't actually Moses that gave the people the bread. It was my Father in heaven that gave them the bread. And he says in verse 33, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread of God is the one who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, the people think that sounds pretty awesome. Just like the Samaritan woman in uh, John chapter 4, just a little bit earlier than this, the living water. Yeah, that sounds great. How do we get a hold of that? And then this is when Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty and it's hard for us to understand how this was so hard for the people to hear, but it was. This was this kid that they knew, that they had probably seen grown up, that they knew his parents, they knew his family, his brothers and sisters, they knew where he came from. They're like, how can this guy say that he's come from heaven? He's Joseph and Mary's son. He didn't come from heaven, he came from Nazareth, right? The people have all of this information and all of their inputs and everything that they think they know is keeping them from what Jesus says is this big, the much bigger picture than they could, they could ever imagine. I had this really weird thing happen to me a couple of years ago. As a grown-up, I, uh, I thought that I had an ear infection. My ears hurt so bad. And, like, adult acne is one thing, but adult ear infections, I mean, are you kidding me? So I... It wasn't getting any better, and I finally decided I was going to have to go to the doctor because it hurt a lot. And I'm thinking, well, at least if I go to the doctor, I'm going to get some medicine. I'm going to feel better pretty soon. So I go to the doctor, and I'm telling him my tale of woe about my ear infection. And the doctor then looks in my ears, looks in my eyes, my nose, and my throat, and gets done with the examination and, and says, yeah, so here's the thing. Your ears are fine. And I said... No, they're not. <laughs> they hurt. And he said, well, <clears throat> when I look in your ears, your ears are totally clear. But when I look in your throat, he said, it looks really raw. It looks really sore. He said, I think what's happening is you've got this really, really sore throat, and it's referring the pain into your ears. And I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, what do you mean? Where did you go to medical school? It's my ears, duh, right? And so then the worst thing he said to me was, yeah, I don't see any signs of an infection. You're just going to have to wait it out. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. My ears are killing me. And so I leave that day, and I'm so mad. And I'm bound to determine that I'm going to prove him wrong because it's obviously my ears. So I do the things, just to prove him wrong, that one would do if one had a sore throat, like take cough drops or have, you know, tea with some honey in it or something like that. And do you know what happened? Darn it, my ears started to feel better. <laughs> I was so mad. 
glad that I was feeling better because I would have sworn to you that my ears, that I had an infection in my ears because they hurt so much. And I was using the inputs that I had, right? I was using the information that I had available to me, which was the pain in my ear. But here's the thing. I was 100% wrong, but I believed to the core of who I was that I was 100% right. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be, isn't it? Because when we believe that we are 100% right, we can't be taught anything. We can't get those wrong ideas out of the way because we believe that we are 100% right. It's a dangerous place to be. And that's what was going on with the people who heard this today. They heard this here in John chapter 6. They thought they knew exactly who Jesus was. They thought they knew exactly what had happened, that, oh, Jesus gave us some dinner because it was late and we were tired and hungry. Isn't that nice? No. They were missing it. They were missing the bigger picture because they believed that they knew what was actually going on. And Jesus goes on to continue teach, and he, uh, it doesn't help the situation any that he says some things about how they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, that kind of well, I mean, people were confused by that. And, you know, considering they were first century Jewish people, that idea, that was like pagan. That was, that was bad news. You stayed away from that. But the people were like, this does not make any sense. This, we know who this guy is. What, is. what is he talking about? And then in the biggest oversimplification ever, in chapter 6, verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. <laughs> right? Yeah, a little bit. So we can't really blame the people who said, yeah, no, I can't. I can't follow this. I can't be a part of this. And and so it tells us that many people left Jesus that day. They believed they were completely right about who Jesus was, but they had it completely turned around. And there are ways in big ways and in small ways that we think we know what's going on. For some of us, maybe we've been following Jesus for a while, and so it's not like this total curtain is in front of our face, but for every single one of us, there are some little things that are just a little bit wonky. There are some things that are just a little bit sideways that are keeping us from who Jesus really wants us to be. The amazing thing and one of the things I love about Scripture and I love about the Bible and that I frankly love about this passage is that what we're looking for is actually included right in here because Jesus is meeting a physical need to point the people to their much deeper and much more significant spiritual need. And Jesus does here, does this here at the Sea of Galilee, just like God had done it centuries before through Moses. When people left, when his people left slavery in Egypt and they were wandering around in the desert, they had like a 40-year time out, and they didn't have the opportunity to make food for themselves. And so God blessed them by providing manna for them every single day. And the people would go out in the morning and they would collect the manna that they needed for that day. And then if they got kind of greedy or if they stopped trusting God and they thought they wanted to grab an extra portion just in case, then they would save it overnight and they'd wake up the next day and it would be rotten and it would have bugs in it and it would stink and it was disgusting and they couldn't use it. So every single day they would go out and get exactly what they needed except for the day before the Sabbath. On the day before the Sabbath, they would go out and they would get a double portion and they would collect it and they would bring it home. And then the day before the Sabbath, they would wake up the next morning on the Sabbath and it would be perfectly fine. It would be perfectly good for them to eat and to use so that they could rest from their work on that day. 
And God was using that time every single day for 40 years to show his people that he wanted to meet not just their physical needs, but he was teaching them to trust him and to trust that he was going to meet their emotional and spiritual needs as well. And if we are paying any bit of attention to what's going on here and what's going on kind of in our own lives, then we know that every single time we experience a need, a felt need, maybe it's not like something that, you know, like a, you know, a, true need, like right now I have to have this, but something that we just, well, a longing, or, you know, we have to eat on a somewhat consistent basis. Every time we experience a felt need, it can point us to the fact that our spiritual needs are so much bigger. Every felt need reminds us that we are not, in who we are, self-sustaining creatures. We're not. We are reminded with every need that we are dependent on provision from somewhere, something, someone outside of ourselves. And many times as Christians, particularly Christians are, are really good at this, we've, we know that God provides for us, and so we say, thank you, God, for the, for the air in my lungs. Thank you, God, that my heart is beating. Thank you that I'm alive today. And we're genuinely thankful for that. But then we go off and we do our own thing, and we behave as though we believe that God's provision for us begins and ends with the breath in our lungs and the beating of our heart right? So we behave as though we believe that literally everything else beyond breath and a beating heart are up to us. <clears throat> you've heard me say before, you've heard John say before, that what we believe drives our behaviors every single time. The beliefs at the core of who we are will de determine how we behave and how we react and how we respond to the felt needs that we have is going to tell us an awful lot about what we believe about how God feels about us and about who God is at the core of who we are. And we all have things inside of us that are not quite true, that are not quite right, that show up in our beliefs and that cause us to behave then in a way that doesn't correspond with what God actually wants for us, that keeps us from having the full life that God desires for us. And if we want to figure out what those are, it's tempting to say, okay, I'm going to examine my beliefs, but we're really, really good at deceiving ourselves. And so if we really want to get to what's going on, instead of looking at examining our beliefs, we would probably be a lot better off taking a good hard look at our behaviors, because our behaviors every single time are going to tell us what we actually believe. When I started at Hope Des Moines uh, around September of 2015, right around that same time, I met a woman whose name was Mindy, and Mindy had called the West Des Moines campus, and she wanted someone to meet with her. And so I uh, ended up meeting with Mindy, and she, she, was, she was dying. She had gone through leukemia, and she'd had some spots in her lungs that when she went through treatment for the leukemia, it hadn't done anything for the spots in her lungs. And in fact, they had grown and they had gotten worse, uh, in fact, during her treatment. And so she knew, um, the doctors had told her that she was, she was going to die of cancer, uh, and probably sooner than she would prefer. And so she reached out to the West Des Moines campus and I got connected with her, and it was pretty clear pretty early on when I met with Mindy that she'd had an experience of God. She'd done churches and Christmas and Easter and kind of different things like that, and she had a, a really rigid, very legalistic, very uh, distant, cruel view of God. It was really obvious, and it was also really obvious that she had no concept of this idea of grace, 
She had no concept that God could have grace for her. She struggled to have grace with other people. She just, she, she couldn't wrap her mind around the concept of grace at all. So she held that in one hand, but then on the other hand, the first time I met with her, she probably said 10 times, I just want to feel close to God before I die. I just want to know that God loves me before I die. And so we got into this pattern, and um, we would meet around once a week, and sometimes, most of the time, I'd go visit her in her home, but then if, if we couldn't, we'd talk on the phone. And she would repeat that over and over, I just want to feel close to God before I die. And I would give her some verses to read, to look at. Uh, Psalm 23, we'd talk about uh, the, the prodigal son, the lost sheep. She had, she'd been given a Bible as a gift. It was beautiful. It was a leather-bound study Bible. I'm not going to lie, I was coveting her Bible. It was really nice. But when I would open it up to show her different passages, it would crack, the spine would crack. It had never been opened. And, and that's okay. I would give her these passages then. So then I would, I would type them up and I'd print them off then so she wouldn't have to worry about finding them because that was overwhelming. So I'd print them off. I'd put them there on a piece of paper so she could have it right by her bed. And I would say, next time you feel scared, take one of these and, and read it, right? And so then I would meet her up, meet the next time. And she would tell me, you know, she was scared and she just wants to feel close to God. And I would say, I, I know. Mindy, and, and then eventually I would say, so, you know, did you read any of those passages this week? And she would say, no, no, I didn't. Okay, all right. And so I knew that she was just keeping everything at a distance. Her, her, she was very alone. She had two brothers. Um, they, one of them lived on the East Coast. One of them lived overseas. Her parents had passed away. She'd never married. She'd never had any children. And so I knew there was something that we needed to get at, but I was at a loss for how we were going to do it. And then one day, I was over visiting with her, and she wanted to know, she wanted to know what happens when we die. She wanted to know, like, will I see Jesus right away? Uh, will I go? She had a lot of really secular ideas, what I would probably call kind of Oprah-ized ideas about what was going to happen. And this was not the time to clean up her theology, not one bit. But I said, you know, Mindy, I don't, I, I don't really know, but let's, let's take a look here. And so I opened to Luke chapter 23, and that's when Jesus is on the cross. And there are the two criminals on either side of him. And the one, cross is, or the, the one criminal is making fun of Jesus, and the other one says, you know, knock it off. We deserve to be here. And uh, the criminal says to Jesus, Jesus, please remember me when you enter your kingdom today. And Jesus responds to him and says, I tell you the truth. Surely today you will be with me in paradise. And I thought this was, like, really smart. <laughs> and she, however, she heard that, and then she looked at me, and she said, what did he do? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, the criminal, what did he do? And I said, well, I guess <clears throat> I don't really know. He probably did a crime against the Roman government. He was probably what we would consider some sort of terrorist. That's usually what the Roman government did for people that they thought were a threat was they would crucify them. And she said, how did Jesus forgive that person so easily? And she said, how come he didn't have to pay for what he did? And I thought, whoa. <laughs> right? And so I said, I said, Mindy, I want you to imagine something. I said, I want you to imagine that right now God is in heaven, and I want you to imagine God in heaven, 
And I want you to imagine God in heaven thinking about you. When you imagine God in heaven thinking about you, what do you think God is thinking? And she was quiet for a minute, and then these big tears came into her eyes, and then that turned into weeping and sobbing that went on for a very long time. And finally, when she could talk, she finally, she said that when she had, she had grown up in West Des Moines her whole life, and after she graduated from Valley High School some 42 years ago, she moved away and she ended up living with this guy who for the next several years was physically and sexually abusive to her. And so she finally got out of that relationship and she realized when I asked her to imagine God in heaven, she realized that she was putting that guy's face on God. And so she realized that every person that she'd kept at a distance and keeping God at a distance and not being willing to even entertain the idea of actually letting him into her life because she believed 100% that not only was she not worthy of God loving her, that God could possibly never love her, and God was cruel. And God took more than God gave. At the core of who she was, that's what she believed about God. (laughs) And that was a really hard day. That was a really hard conversation. We met for a really long time that day. And as hard as it was, though, by the time we were done, she understood a truth about God that she had not understood her whole life. And that truth that now she's understood was about to change her life. She understood that she had had this completely wrong view, and now her perspective was completely changed. And the funny thing was then after that, we would talk about these passages that we had talked about before, and she hung on every word of the prodigal son, and she hung on every word of the lost sheep. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 became her favorite verses. Everything in this had completely changed for her. It completely had come alive because now she understood that grace was for her. Once we understand who God is, then we can understand who we are, and we understand who we are in relation to God, and it truly changes everything. She used to not, you know, I, we'd read, I'd read uh, the prodigal son or Psalm 23 and she would just kind of smile and nod politely like many of you do. And don't get me wrong, I appreciate it, right? Uh, but she, she, it was obvious she was just going through the motions. There was nothing there until she got that belief, that false belief out of the way. And then the really amazing thing that happened is as she was getting closer to the end of her life, of course she still wanted more time as all of us would and it's totally appropriate. And of course she was still scared and that's totally appropriate, but her prayers began to change. And now instead of wanting more time for herself, she wanted more time so that she could talk to her brothers about this. She wanted her brothers to know about the grace that she had just found. She wanted the other people in her life. Now she wanted to point them to Jesus instead of being consumed with feeling scared and sad at what she was losing. She wanted to make sure that other people got what she had found before she died. It was a complete change in her behavior because her beliefs had been shifted. The curtain that was standing right in front of her all of a sudden now was moved away. And the thing is, the sad thing is, it took her staring at death to realize and to get it figured out 
There was an urgency. There was a piece of urgency, a sense of urgency going on there. But if we're sitting, sitting here today and we're still alive, as I think many of us are, I don't think I've bored any of you to death actually quite yet, then we have an opportunity to get some of those ideas that are right in front of us, that are completely messed up, that are holding us back. We have the opportunity to get those switched around and to lean in to who God has created us to be. And so I can't help but wonder if we were sitting here and if we were going about our life and if we believed at the core of who we are that God is not mad at us, if we believed at the core of who we are, if you believe that God is not annoyed with you, God is not frustrated with you, that God desires to be intimately involved in the details of your life, not so that God can judge and condemn you, but because God calls you in to his kingdom work and he wants to have this intimate, ongoing relationship with you as you do the things that he has called you to do. What if we believe that was true, 100% at the core of who we are? We have so many opportunities coming up in ways to get involved and connected, and I don't want you to do those things because it's the right thing to do. I want you to do those things because you believe that Jesus dying for you on the cross has changed your life and has saved your life. One of the things that we're doing this season is building churches uh, in West Africa, and um, it's changed lives. It has totally and completely changed lives. There are 40,000 people, and that number is growing, in Ghana and Western Africa who have a church to go to who did not have one before. And it's not that they uh, were maybe visiting the Methodist church a couple miles in the next village. They didn't have a Christian church to go to at all. These are brand new Christians. These are brand new people who know God who did not know him before. And you don't know what I think? It's amazing. Someday when we are in heaven, we are going to meet these people, and there are going to be way Way more people who are in heaven because of Lutheran Church of Hope in Africa than there are associated with Lutheran Church of Hope in Des Moines, Iowa. If that's not worth praising God for, I don't know what is. That is amazing. Absolutely. God invites us to get invited in this work. God could do it a lot better by himself, but he invites us in. He wants to partner with us in his kingdom work. And uh, we have a video here that we're going to go ahead and show. Um, it's uh, about some of the work that's going on with these churches here in Africa. I want to go ahead and have you take a look at that here. So Ghana is on the uh, west coast of Africa. It's not a big country. It's only about one and a half times the size of the state of Iowa, but yet it has six times as many people. Ghana is uh, uh, right near the equator, so uh, the temperature there is generally pretty warm uh, all year round. Actually, if it gets down to about 70 degrees, we see people there wanting to wear coats. A lot of the people live in, in the big city of Accra. It's the capital. But most of the people where we go to with our uh, mission trips is in the rural parts, into rural villages where life is very different than it is here in Iowa. We have to traverse to these villages down roads that aren't really roads. Uh, the villages are generally very remote. Uh, the roads are not very good. Uh, they're paths, really, because people walk in these villages. They will ride bicycles. Occasionally, we'll see some motorbikes, but you'll never see a car or a truck or a vehicle inside of a village. Uh, life is really kind of isolated for many of these folks. Just about a month ago, I was in Ghana, and I visited 12 churches over the course of two days uh, and traveling down those roads that I showed you earlier. Uh, and 
the reflections that you get and the experience that you get to have in, by being there in person, the stories you get to hear are really important. I want to tell you one about a, a, a gentleman I met in one of these villages. He is now one of the, he's actually a Sunday school teacher in this village. His name is Abraham. And I asked him, I said, so what difference has the church made, made in your life or in the life of your village? He thought for a second and he said, it's everything has changed, everything. Um, and I said, so what has changed? And he said, well, first off, he said, before the church was here and I didn't know God, I walked around the village like a madman. That was his word, madman. I didn't know right from wrong, but since I've discovered Jesus and I've learned the Bible and I've studied the gospel and I know of salvation, my life has totally changed. I know right from wrong. Jesus has taught me that. And my job is now to teach the children, to teach them the Sunday school messages, to read to them from the gospels and to teach them the love of Jesus and to give them the hope of salvation in heaven. And he said, that's just changed everything. He said, I want to give back. I want to share God's love with all the people in my community. Our community is totally different today than it was two years ago. It's not, not everybody in that village goes to their church, but the, the people in the church have changed the community. The community has learned right from wrong. The people don't fight as like they used to. It is a much more harmonious and loving spirit led by Jesus Christ. What we believe impacts how we behave. You heard it there in that video that just hearing the gospel has impacted how people are relating to one another, how people are getting along. We have so many ways for you to get connected and involved this Lent season, but here's the thing. I don't want you to do it because the preacher said you should. I don't want you to do it because it's on your bulletin. I don't want you to do it because other campuses are doing it and you feel like you have to be a part of it. If you're going to get involved in a life group, I want you to do it because you believe that God, who is already in community as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, invites us into community as well. If you're going to pray for uh, a kiddo here at Hope Des Moines, I want you to do it because you believe that prayer changes things, that because you believe that the creator of the heavens and the earth gives us his power through prayer. If you're going to get involved in this project in Africa, either by giving financially or prayers, whatever the case may be, I want you to do it because you believe that Jesus dying on the cross has changed and saved your life. And I want you to do it because you believe that there's no other answer. Peter said this to Jesus at the end of this chapter, John chapter 6. We get towards the end, and, and the disciples are uh, disappearing, and they're leaving Jesus. And, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, what about you? Are you guys going to stick around? And Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? And it's not a desperate, you know, like, well, I don't have anything else to do, and I got kicked out of my apartment. It's not that at all. It's, Lord, to where would we go? You have eternal life. You have everything that we need. If we aren't here with you, we have nothing when we believe that the God of heaven and earth wants to meet our physical needs and care for us, so to point us to the deeper needs that we have for his living bread and his living water, it can change everything. I want you to get involved because you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that God's love is for you and is for people all over the planet. I don't God's doing this thing, and I don't want to miss it. And you can say that that's selfish if you want to, that then it kind of puts it back on us. But who, 
wouldn't we all want to be a part of that if we know that God is up to something amazing? Don't we all want to join in on that? God invites us in. He wouldn't have to, but he invites us in. In the same way that God invites us in, Jesus invited the disciples in on that final night when he shared that last supper with them. This meal is all about the invitation. This meal is all about being included in God's kingdom work and what it is that God is up to. Jesus didn't meet together with a group of people who had it figured out. (laughs) Jesus didn't meet with a group of people who were super religious and super on it, not even close, because the same man who had said, Lord, to whom will we go? That night was going to say that he didn't even know who Jesus was. And another one was going to betray him and turn him over to the police, and the rest of them were going to run and hide and make sure that the same thing didn't happen to them. So Jesus did not meet with people who knew what they were doing. Jesus met with people who had a willing, open heart, who were willing to look at the things that they believed, and then once it all kind of came crashing on their faces, were really ready to realize that Jesus was up to something bigger than they could have ever, ever imagined. And that's what Jesus invites us to as well.